Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hey, it's Thursday. Thanks for being here this Thursday, February 1st. Um, I'm not going to say there's a lot going on because I realized a, a second ago I think that's pretty much how I'm starting every show these days. So let's just assume that's a given, all right? I'm not going to say it, but know that it is implied there is a lot going on. Okay, do you feel better about that? Uh, got some really interesting uh, guests to talk to today. Um, Rex Hupke is going to be here at 2.30. That's going to start our day Um Talking with him about some um, writing he's done about Taylor Swift. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, that's a discussion we'll have at 2.30. Until then, <coughs> excuse me, there is a possibility. There is a possibility, you know, that, um, excuse me. Ooh, um this new Republican Congress is um, carrying Donald Trump's water in that, you know, Donald Trump made it clear that his next administration is all going to be about revenge and retribution, uh, that um, there's this cynicism about government. Government doesn't get anything done. Government is just there to um, harass the other party and you know, if you think that it's wrong, well, everybody does it. That's what Republicans keep saying. Well, everybody does it. It's not just us. You know, like um, the what they the bottom line is that they want people to believe that the two impeachments of Donald Trump when he was in office were not based on high crimes and misdemeanors. Um, the, the first one was not based on him trying to blackmail Ukraine. The second was not based on all the other. <sighs> lies and crud. Uh, they want people to believe that it was just politics. They were Democrats were just going after Trump because they're Democrats, not because there was any good reason to go after Trump. So how do you uh, get people to believe that? Well, do it over and over again. Um, that's why they're they continue to have hearings and want to talk to Hunter Biden. There's talk. There was talk for a long time. We're going to impeach Biden. Well, why? Because he impeached Trump. You know, that's politics. But that isn't how politics used to be. They want you to believe that's how politics always was, but it isn't. Now, as we've talked about, there is an effort to impeach one of Joe Biden's cabinet members. Homeland Security head, Mr. Mayorkas, has been facing um, impeachment discussions in Congress. And it looked like the whole thing was going to steamroll through. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. Ken Buck is a Republican, a rather outspoken one. And I think we are going to be hearing more and more from Mr. Buck. Why? Because he is not running for re-election. Isn't it funny how suddenly Republicans 
become very clear-eyed about the world and what's going on once they decide they're not going to run for re-election, whether they just decide not to run again, whether they decide to retire. Suddenly, all of this partisan politics that they were a part of, it doesn't look the same. Or, or, they never believed in any of the crap that they promulgated. And once they realize they're not going to have to run for re-election, they can walk away from towing the party line. Ken Buck was on um, MSNBC with Chris Jansing. And he said quite clearly and quite firmly that he was absolutely going to be a no vote on the Mayorkas impeachment. Republican Ken Buck, one of the more outspoken Republicans in Congress, but is not running for re-election, so now he is unchained. He's off the leash. And he said he is dead set in this vote. There's no wiggle room. He's not going to change his mind. He is not going to vote that Mr. Mayorkas be impeached. Why? Because the effort to impeach Mr. Mayorkas is not based on any high crime or misdemeanor. That's the standard. You have to do something pretty bad to face impeachment. He said this is not an impeachable offense. This is a policy difference. There's a policy difference. Mayorkas wants to do things a certain way and Republicans want to do things a different way. That's not a high crime or a, dis- uh, or a misde- high crime or misdemeanors. That's a difference of policy. That's a difference in the way you are going about the business of government. That is not why you impeach someone. And Ken Buck also was warning his fellow Democrats, Mr. Republican Ken Buck from Colorado, He warned his fellow Republicans that if indeed, either with the next election or one down the road, we have a Republican president, this will open up a door to going after any president's cabinet members if you don't like the way they're doing their job. And I don't mean that you think they're guilty of bribery or corruption or giving out state secrets, that would be high crimes and misdemeanors. You just don't like their policies. Maybe they want a tax cut you don't support. Maybe they want a program to be re-upped and you think it should sunset. That's not what impeachment is about. So um, they have lost one vote from their very slim majority. Um, Another Republican, Brian Higgins, has resigned from the House, and that resignation takes place tomorrow. He is officially gone tomorrow. Brian Hughes is a Democrat. Democrats' total numbers will be 212. Um, Republicans now, I think, have two votes Because remember, uh, Kevin McCarthy, who could have just said he wasn't running for re-election and could have stuck it out, 
Um, he right before Christmas, he was like, you know what? I'm done. Yeah, my seat isn't going to be filled for a while. And I know that eats into a very slim majority. But you know what? You treated me like crap and I'm done. So apparently uh, Republicans are reconsidering this impeachment and they are counting their votes very closely. Very closely. Because they may not have enough to pull this off. What else is going on? (laughs) Well, Congress, by an overwhelming bipartisan majority, passed a bill that um, includes child tax credits and a few corporate tax breaks, which was which was the bargain. (laughs) You know, Congress under Mike Johnson has been the place where things go to die, where nothing happens. This time, they're the ones that passed a bill that by all accounts may die in the Senate. It's like, People called Congress, the House of Representatives, the, this, they called this the do-nothing Congress uh, because the far-right elements wouldn't let anything move forward. Well, we finally got this bill. Woohoo! Over 300 votes for it. Both parties. This is a good one. And um, the Senate, the Republicans in the Senate saying, yeah, not so fast. Mm, we're not so sure this is a good idea because remember Donald Trump has been calling Republican senators and telling them in no uncertain terms that he doesn't want anything to pass because he doesn't want Joe Biden to have any victories. Democratic uh, Congressperson Dan Goldman was on CNN talking about this situation Listen to what he had to say. Partisanship, I think we should just note it. It's almost shocking. 357 to 70 is how it passed in the House. But you just heard Chuck Grassley's take when report when he was speaking to reporters, suggesting his hesitation, less on policy, more on not wanting to give Joe Biden a win. Do you think that's going to hold this up? Well, I agree with you that it was a somewhat shocking example of bipartisanship in what has been a horrifically partisan Congress, especially here in the House of Representatives, where the Republicans have expressly made it clear they are not interested in any bipartisanship. And the child tax credit is essential for many families. It certainly doesn't go far enough, but it is better than what we have. And for me, in my district in New York City, the addition of low income income housing tax credit uh, is essential to building more affordable homes. But again, here we are, both on immigration and now on this tax bill, where President Biden and a bipartisan group of Congress are trying to actually solve problems for the American people. And Chuck Grassley, Donald Trump, uh, Mike Johnson, they are trying to kill solutions 
just for political gain and political weapons. And it is an incredibly cynical way to look at things, especially after so little has gotten done this Congress. Uh, this would help businesses. This would help children. This would help families. And yet Chuck Grassley doesn't want to pass it because he's concerned about the election and he's concerned that the wealthiest and the biggest corporations won't continue with their uh, plush tax breaks that they got from Donald Trump. It, it is. It should be put to the American people that that is what the Republican Party stands for and the Democratic Party is standing for getting work done for the American people. Yeah. So if the Senate refuses to move forward on this measure, I think it's going to come back to bite them, you know, because this is obvious. Donald Trump has called Republican senators and said, don't vote on anything. Don't vote on anything. We don't want Joe Biden to be able to point to a single thing. We want to be able to attack him on all these fronts and say he's not doing anything. But that only works if people don't know that you're being obstructionist. If people don't know that Republicans are refusing to vote on this stuff, then they might say, well, yeah, Joe Biden didn't get anything passed. But all this is happening out in the open. It's out in the open. Nobody's hiding this. I mean, Chuck Grassley's saying, you know, Donald Trump wants to make sure we don't give Joe Biden a win. So we're not going to give Joe Biden a win. Um, Unbelievable. Unbelievable. The cowardice they are showing in the face of Donald Trump. One person who is, albeit gently, (laughs) attacking Donald Trump is Nikki Haley. She's still in the race. Yeah, the polling, you know, I've told you, I think polling is hasn't been effective for the last, I don't know, 10 years. It hasn't been something you can rely on. But one thing that if you if you see dozens of polls over time and they show the same thing, then that might be something that you can say is probably happening. All of the polls that have taken place on uh, how Republicans are going to vote in the presidential primary in South Carolina all have consistently shown the same thing. Uh, Donald Trump has a commanding lead. Now that it is um, just him and Nikki Haley, that hasn't changed. I think the thought was, you know, maybe certainly not the DeSantis voter, but maybe some of the Chris Christie voters or voters who voted for anybody else might join the Nikki Haley camp. And perhaps they have, but the numbers are still not in her favor by double digits. And that is her home state. Some people I've talked to um, are convinced that she will drop out before uh, the South Carolina Republican primary, which takes place toward the end of February. I don't know. Ordinarily, it's a real humiliation to go down to defeat in your home state. Supposedly, the people who know you best and should love you best will vote for you no matter what. But I don't think... 
I don't think this is a, a typical sort of election. You know, Donald Trump's voters aren't with him because of his policies. They're not with him because he's a man of character. They're, they follow him with a religious fervor. It, that defies any kind of logic. So I don't think you can even expect Nikki Haley to win even in her home state. But she, um, she's getting under Trump's skin on a pretty regular basis. Again, not like Chris Christie. You know, Chris Christie was very blunt in his language, very terse. Nikki Haley is more restrained. And sadly, I think we all know um, that the minute she withdraws from the race, she's going to find some reason she's going to say, well, yeah, all those things I said about Donald Trump are true, but Biden's worse. That, I think, is going to be the tack she takes. But for as long as it lasts, it is interesting from time to time to dip into the Nikki Haley campaign. She was on um, The Breakfast Club, which is a show um, hosted by uh, Charlemagne the God. And uh, Nikki was talking to Charlemagne the God about Donald Trump. It's kind of quick, but I want to share it with you. Listen to this. How has Trump changed politics for the good and the bad? He's made it chaotic. He's made it self-absorbed. He's made people dislike and judge each other. He's left that a president should have moral clarity and know the difference between right or wrong. And he's just toxic. I mean, he, you know, I think a lot of the things he broke needed to be broken. But he doesn't know how to fix things again. I think a lot of things he broke needed to be broken. But he doesn't know how to fix things again. That would have been something that I think would have been worth pursuing. Uh, he broke immigration. He broke the economy. He broke um, jobs numbers. Uh, he tried to break NATO. Let's see. What else did he break or try to break? Democratic strategist Simon Rosenberg joined Lawrence O'Donnell on MSNBC. It was a very wide-ranging and interesting conversation. Um, one of the things he talked about was candidate Biden versus candidate Trump and uh, how he sees Trump making some serious mistakes. Listen to this. The fundamental dynamic of this election is that Joe Biden's a good president, is going to have a strong case for re-election, the country's better off. And they're running the most unfit guy to run for president in all of our history, who's a far weaker candidate than he was in 2020. I mean, he's campaigning from the courthouse and not from the White House. He's more degraded, more extreme, more dangerous. His performance on the stump, as you pointed out, is wild and erratic and, frankly, disturbing, right, if you really listen to him. And he's also making kind of classic political mistakes, the kind of mistakes that candidates who lose elections 
make, like coming out against the ACA at the same time we're having record signups of this program and also, you know, taking credit for ending Roe. I mean, those are traditional political mistakes that can cause candidates to lose elections. I just think when you add all this up, Right. The fact that we the information that we have today that we didn't have about him before. Right. That he's a rapist and that he stole America's secrets and he led an insurrection and he ended Roe. When you put all this together, it just gets very hard to see how this guy can win this election in 2024. And it's why I'm so fundamentally optimistic about where we are right now. Woo. Isn't it nice to hear somebody say they're fundamentally optimistic about where we are right now? And, you know, that's always been the thing with Donald Trump. That's what we saw in 2020. He appeals to a small number of voters. Now, unfortunately, because of our electoral college, small populated states that happen to be red states have an outside influence in who our next president is. Um, That's something that I would love to see corrected in my lifetime. I would love to see the electoral college gotten rid of. You know, there's this also this agreement. There are states that have signed on to this agreement that... Uh, despite the Electoral College, they will give their delegates to whichever candidate gets the most popular vote. Because to get rid of the Electoral College is going to just be, it's going to, it's going to be a bureaucratic nightmare. But to get around that, a bunch of states have said, we will agree. We are signing this pledge that our state is going to give all of its delegates to whomever gets the most popular vote. Unfortunately, there haven't been enough states that have signed that pledge. So we are still at the mercy of the Electoral College. But I agree with Simon Rosenberg's premise. Donald Trump is playing to his base. His base is very far right in their beliefs. Most of the country is not that far right. Most of the country is either liberal or progressive or independent or middle of the road or even a Republican who just isn't an ultra-fascist, far-right Republican. That's the majority. And um, Donald Trump is ignoring those people. Young voters are up in arms over Roe v. Wade. Has he just written young voters off? Is he getting a skewed vision of the world because the people who come to his rallies and his talks are just they've drunk the Kool-Aid and they love him no matter what? Is he just is he coming away with the impression that there are more of those people than show up at his rallies? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense to me. Real quick, because Nikki Haley is in this as well. There's a new ad out. Now, this is a lot of Trump and a lot of Nikki Haley, but this is an ad for the Biden campaign. This is a new Biden ad for the presidential contest of 2024. Uh, Listen to this. Donald Trump is truly confused. Nikki Haley is in charge of security. We offered her 10,000 people. They don't want to talk about that. He didn't just get me confused. He mentioned it over and over and over again. He's not what he was in 2016. He has declined. That's a fact. I mean, we won last time. We won 50 states, right? This is not Donald Trump of 2016, guys. What? (laughs) What is... If he's off the teleprompter, he can barely keep a a cogent thought. I mean, that's just fact. We are an instant. 
substitute in a powerful death penalty. We will put this on. I think he's declining. I stumbled and mumbled purposely. I do speak in long, complex sentences and have a lot of material in each sentence. You have voter ID to buy a loaf of bread. You have, you have ID to buy a loaf of bread. Have you noticed? He's a little confused these days. A person close to Trump actually says that he's rattled by Biden's efforts to get under his skin. Long may they continue. We're going to take a break and be back with Rex Hupke after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820. I am pleased to be joined by USA Today columnist Rex Hupke, who um, writes about what's happening in the world in a way that doesn't make us want to throw ourselves off a cliff, usually. Usually. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That is what I strive for on, on this show. Yes, there's a lot going on, and not all of it is good. But by God, we're going to get through it one way or the other. And people like Rex Hupke, give me hope. Hello, Rex. How are you? I'm doing fine. It's always good to have uh, people listening or reading not to throw themselves you know, off of <laughs> yes. a bridge or anything. That's a, it's a, it's a plus. <laughs> yes. No lemmings here. No lemmings here. We're going to see exactly. that cliff edge and we're going to turn right around and come back. Um, it's going to it's going to be a very it's going to be a very busy year, though, isn't it? Uh, yes. Yes, it is. It's going to be busy and it's going to be weird. <laughs> yes. Fairly well established that at this point. Yes. Oh, speaking of which, um, Alex, uh, let's play that excerpt we have from Jimmy Kimmel's show. Listen to this, Rex. This might be what does it. Yet it won't be January 6th. It won't be the election fraud or the sexual assault or dancing with Jeffrey Epstein or even fathering Don Jr. What is finally, what's finally going to bring down Donald Trump will be an army of pissed off Swifties. Rex, you wrote, did liberals put Taylor Swift and pro-vaccine Travis Kelsey in the Super Bowl? Yes, we did. Actually, I think they call him Pfizer Kelsey. That's what is, you know, because he's a pro vaccine. And uh, well, first of all, talk about what you wrote about it. I think before even the Kansas City Chiefs were set to go to the Super Bowl. Was didn't you write before then? Uh, no, I wrote that after uh, oh, okay. after the after because I figured at that point the uh, the plan was in action. You know, the mm-hmm. liberal plan to uh, mm-hmm. to utilize Swift and Kelsey. Uh, so uh, the cat was sort of out of the bag at that point. <laughs> yeah, um, and you probably heard this that this whole thing. First of all, the relationship is uh, false and was created as a psyop. The outcome has already been determined of who's going to win. And at halftime, Taylor's going to make a big announcement that she's endorsing Joe Biden. And that's what this whole thing has been about since they first started dating. Did you know that? Yeah, well, yeah. And I just was frustrated that they figured it out so quickly. You know, our, our how did great, they? Our, our carefully crafted plot uh, was was somehow uh somehow sniffed out by these wise right-wing sleuths. Rats. What do you think is behind this? In, in all seriousness, what the, the, the right is up in arms over this romance. What do you think is, is behind it all? Uh, I think it's a mix of things. I mean, you know, we're just in a, 
the right in particular is in an outrage uh, feedback loop. So whatever they can find to get riled up about and turn into a conspiracy, they will they will pounce on. I mean, obviously, Taylor Swift, she endorsed Biden last time around. So the idea that she might do it again is not shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. I mean, that's, you know, pretty predictable. Um, and so, you know, they don't have I mean, look, this, I, I don't think I'm I mean, I'm, I'm not, I am biased uh, as a you know, liberal columnist, but but I I think it's pretty uh, tough to argue with that the right does not have its uh, in its fan base a huge number of big time celebrities, and so, so the fact that you know uh, we I think one of the knuckleheads uh, I don't remember if it was Charlie Kirk or one of these weirdo right wing. Uh, flamethrowers said something about like, well, we've got John Voigt and we have Ted Nugent. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, good for you. So I think there's some jealousy basically. Uh, and then there's also a high level of sexism, of course, you know, mm-hmm. and the idea of a, the idea of a powerful, influential, wildly successful, immensely talented woman is anathema to a lot of these little incels in their, in their, strange little uh, brains and stuff like that. So, so I think it, it just, it just triggers all kinds of things, you know, that, that, that they react to and in, in sort of like Pavlovian ways almost. Um, so it's, a, it's like a perfect storm really. Oh, <laughs> uh, Ray uh, told me this morning that he read that Kid Rock made an announcement that he's going to start going after Taylor Swift. Um, you know, I guess because he sees himself as, as her equal, and he, of course, is in that same Ted Nugent kind of uh, kind of yeah. camp. And so, I'll uh, get ready, get ready for the yeah. uh, bone moths from a Kid Rock, who is known as an intellectual in many circles that he has created himself. Um, otherwise, outside of those circles, most people think he's an idiot, um, only because he says idiotic things and does idiotic things. But that's beside the point. You know, he sold yeah. some records, damn it. Well, in the case of, of Taylor Swift, my guess is that she just doesn't think of him at all. Like, it's like, yeah. like I don't think that particular person is on her radar in any way, shape or form, uh, nor is he on the radar of, of any. I think if you were to poll the majority of Taylor Swift fans, uh, a large percentage wouldn't have the foggiest idea who could rock it. Yeah. Well, you uh, know, here's where I think. This, you know, so many things that the right does sometimes uh, have a tendency to blow up in their faces. There's a voter that everybody is concerned about with this next election, the quote unquote low information voter, the person who just doesn't want to hear about politics. They're just sick of it. They want to just live their lives. They want to take their kids to soccer. You know, they want to go to the movies and they don't want to talk about it and they don't want to think about it. And they just certainly don't want to read about it or hear about it. But somebody like Taylor Swift transcends that. Everybody wants to know what she's doing. Everybody wants to follow this romance. And I think they could potentially break through to the low information voter by attacking someone, the low information voter you know, kind of likes, you know, maybe they're not a full fledged Swifty, but they think this whole thing's kind of sweet or they think it's kind of funny or um, it makes the football games more interesting or whatever. And wait, wait, you're attacking you're attacking her. You're attacking them. 
Well, that's not right. I mean, has yeah. anybody thought this through st- strategically, do you think? Yeah, I mean, you're already struggling uh, with uh, female voters of, uh, across the, really across the spectrum um, because of uh, the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So your response is to attack arguably the most popular uh, with with due respect to Beyonce, who's right there also. But, you know, one of the most popular female superstars in the world. (laughs) That's your strategy. I mean, with a with a fan base known like a fan base, frankly, that is feared (laughs) and known for being, you know, incredibly powerful and influential. I mean, you know, I you don't want to get on the wrong side of of the Swifties, generally speaking. uh, And, and, you know, they are very defensive of her and uh, her privacy and all kinds of things like that. So. You know, I mean, look, she she has uh, an enormous amount of power, and and uh, I can certainly understand why they would be threatened by that. Because I I, I did write a piece so it was quite a while ago, making the argument that you know this election, I think, is going to be tight no matter what, and that puts someone like her. Uh, in a position of potentially election swinging power, and I don't think that's a that's not an exaggeration. And I mean, you know, every circumstances would often break right for it to happen, but certainly somebody who has that kind of sway over, particularly over younger people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, young new voters and that sort of thing, uh, someone who's shown her ability to get people registered to vote and get involved. Uh, in a tight election, you better believe that could swing things. I mean, all it's going to take is, you know, really probably one or two states for things to break a certain way. Uh, so uh, I think, of course, they're, you know, they're going to be afraid of that. They're, uh, it just seems like the, I mean, certainly Trump, but even the the broader GOP, which I would think ought to know better, uh, seems to only be able to cater to its own base. I don't see any area in which they're managing to expand um, outside of the kind of MAGA base that Trump has, has nurtured. And, and that's obviously problematic because it wasn't enough last time. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where the I don't know where the new votes are going to come from this time. I mean, I know Biden's got his people have their issues with Biden, and I'm certainly not portraying him as, uh, you know, the great uh, inspirer or, or whatever for Democrats. But at this point, I mean, you just kind of look at what's happening and you look at the numbers, and I certainly know who I'd rather be right now. Um, yeah. Because, and, you know, there, so. even though all the Republicans who are in elected office seem to always capitulate to Trump and his ideas, and no matter what goes on, they eventually fall into line. But, you know, some Republicans involved in politics, not necessarily in office, I've been reading where they're saying, this guy isn't good for the party. If this guy is the nominee, we will lose the Congress in the next election. You know, and, and there are voices who see the larger effects here. And I mean, I'm no fan of Tennessee Senator uh, Marsha Blackburn. Uh, but there was um, a clip, I think it was from a Taylor Swift documentary, where she was obviously in a green room or backstage somewhere talking to her parents and explaining to her parents, and this was a while ago, why she couldn't support Marsha Blackburn. And it was like, 
You know, I don't agree with a lot of the things that she says. I don't agree with a lot of the things that she says she believes. And it was this, you know, this heartfelt conversation where she was basically telling her parents, who must be conservatives, why she could not support Marsha Blackburn. Just recently, I think she, probably she was probably being interviewed on, you know, OAN or Newsmax or Fox, one of those conservative outlets. Marsha Blackburn yeah. was specifically asked about Donald Trump. And even Marsha Blackburn was very, very careful, Rex. She was, um, well, you know, she's very successful and she's done a lot of things. She's a great singer. And I'm, I'm watching this clip waiting for her to say, but she's that, she's that. She never did. You know, she may have like blinked her eyes and tried to send a secret signal that she wasn't <laughs> a huge supporter. But man, oh man, what came out of her mouth was um, it may not have been sugar or honey, but it was in that vein. It was very sweet. Even Marsha Blackburn knows not to go yeah. up against Taylor <laughs> Swift, somebody who has publicly trashed her. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's bonkers. I mean, they they just don't. Uh, I mean, she she's smart. Yeah, I mean, she she recognizes obviously. Like, okay, this is it's like a, it's like a you know sort of like a third rail almost. Okay, okay don't touch this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So that's what you know. I I, I mean, there was part of me. I, I I put something up on Twitter the other day relating to some of this zaniness where I said, you know, I almost I, I almost start to feel like. Trump knows that he can't win, so he's trying to lose in a way that, you know, is preposterous so that he can claim it was stolen. (laughs) I'm starting to, like, which is, of course, I'm, of course, just creating my own conspiracy theories now. But but it is, I mean, some of this stuff, it it just doesn't make sense. And, And the Republicans falling in line, it's like... You got to see that. I mean, I know they see the right. I just don't I don't get it. I don't know. I I don't understand the machinations behind it all. Uh, I mean, the best thing if I'm a Republican, uh, an honest Republican, the best thing that could happen in this election, assuming Trump doesn't just go away, would be for Republicans to just get absolutely clobbered and hope that after that they they then start a snap out of the MAGA trance and Start becoming some semblance of a normal political party again, um, but <laughs> silly, silly you know, man, that, I, uh, silly man, Rick Hupke. Yeah, silly right. man. I know, I know. I, it's such a such a naive little little fella, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, naive little fella, we're going to take a, a quick break, and when we come back, I'm going to talk to you about Marjorie Taylor Green. You know her, you love her. You can't live without her, Marjorie Taylor Green. Rex Hupkin, I'll be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you, CPT 820. I am joined by USA Today columnist Rex Hupke, who has recently wrote about Marjorie Taylor Greene, or posted on Twitter anyway, about Marjorie Taylor Greene. And um, one thing I didn't mention at the top of the news, Marjorie Taylor Greene wanted um, Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar to be censured because of treasonous remarks she made in a speech in Minneapolis on Saturday 
turns out, well, the speech she made, she made the speech in the Somali language, and it was mistranslated. It was mistranslated, either by accident or on purpose. And the things that Marjorie Taylor Greene wanted to censure her over were things she did not say, which is just, you know, it kind of says a lot about where we are right now as a Congress and a people. But I love what you posted, uh, the clip you had of Marjorie Taylor Greene talking about the indictment. What's yes. that? Hello? <laughs> yes, apparently Marjorie, Green, Marjorie Taylor Greene does not know how to say the word indictment, which is uh, remarkable given the fact that her uh, orange hero has is facing 91 uh, different indictments. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so. I shared my longstanding uh, forward phrase that I've tried desperately to, to get uh, to become a, a thing, which is make stupidity embarrassing again, uh, because that's that's what we need to do. I mean, the fact that I mean, forget Trump, but, you know, Trump has has led to the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Lauren Babert, Boberts, whatever, and, you know, all these just a, a, a veritable cavalcade of absolutely unqualified weirdos who, who don't know their head from their tail. And so, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing where it's like, you know, there was a there was a time when you would say something dumb or entirely factually incorrect or just ridiculous. And that would be embarrassing. Right. <laughs> Like people would be like, "Ooh, boy, that must have been awkward." But now, in the, at least in the Republican Party, you can say astonishingly dumb things, and it just ups your profile and and helps you out. So I I am a firm believer that as a society we need to make it embarrassing to be dumb, you know, like to be that yeah. dumb uh, publicly. So Marjorie Taylor Greene, whether it's the the incorrect translation uh, and or or just virtually everything that comes out of her mouth. I mean, she has no business being an elected official. It's ridiculous. And she just makes a fool of herself every time she talks. And I, just because I want to be clear here, I've always believed that you have to be careful making fun of somebody if they mispronounce a word, because that usually means that they learned the word by reading it. They've never heard the word in conversation. But... For Marjorie Taylor Greene to not know the word indictment when she is in political life and has um, up close and personal experience with indictment, that's just that's just beyond the pale. So I'm not making fun of her just because she mispronounced a word, but because it was the word that she mispronounced. And if there's anything Marjorie Taylor Greene should know about, it is indictments, you would think. Yes. Right. Um, well, and, and go ahead. Sorry. I mean, these are lawmakers, right? So you'd think they would have at least passing familiarity with some form of law. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't yeah. seem like a. It doesn't seem like a big ask. No. And there was a time when being a lawyer was quite common in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. That um, that that would be like um, one of the stones that you stepped on on the your way to being an elected official, but no more. Absolutely no more. Um, before um, we wrap up uh, this, I wanted to get you to weigh in. Today is the day after the uh, Chicago Tribune job action. I know that you and Eric Zorn, Mary Schmeek, um, Heidi Stevens all posted a letter in solidarity 
to your former colleagues at the Tribune. Uh, talk to me about what conversations you've had with folks. Uh, yeah, that, well, that's going on today. They're on strike today. First oh, time I got in confused. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, 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 I, okay. I talked no, to no, Greg no, Pratt about it yesterday, and yes, you're right. Oh, right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was in preparation he, yeah, for in preparation for yeah. the strike. Right. So they're so they're striking, uh, obviously against uh, Alden, the the big hedge fund that came in, the vampiric hedge fund that mm-hmm. came in and took over the Tribune. Uh, I mean, it has been. I was there when we got the union going, and I played very little role in that. So I'm not, I say we just in the universal sense there. Um, but, uh, you know, and that was geez, several years ago. They still don't have a contract. Uh, Greg says it's been five, over five years. Five years. Okay. Yeah, that makes more sense. Right. Okay. And, and then, you know, pay is bad. And a lot of these, you know, you have journalists who are having to, you know, young journalists having to get side hustles just to make ends meet. So it's ridiculous. And uh, I applaud them for taking this stand. If I was still working there, I'd be with them. Um, and, I, you know, I think it's great. And then they've encouraged people to not click on the Tribune website, not engage with any official Tribune, social media accounts, all that kind of thing today. And I, I, I'm doing that. I hope other people show some support uh they deserve to be paid fairly they're not you know look we're journalists we're not asking it <laughs> we're not going to be none of us are going to be taylor swift uh, or anything like that like we just but they're looking for you know just mm-hmm. fair pay from a company that is squeezing tons of money out of uh not you know not just the tribune a number of papers across the country and and anyway so i i think it's great what they're doing i was happy uh, eric zorn and mary uh, put that statement together and I was happy to sign on. And, you know, I, I have nothing but uh, respect and, and love and admiration for all the folks that I worked with and the newer folks working there that I never met. Um, it's important. I mean, this, you know, people need, <laughs> they need the paper, they need that tribune going and being strong and uh, keeping an eye out for everyone uh, doing the amazing investigative stuff they do, you know, the political coverage in City Hall, the, the whole nine yards. So I certainly hope people support them, and I hope that uh, the folks at Alden pay attention. I mean, this, you know, these are not big or unreasonable requests by any stretch. I mean, there's people there that haven't seen a pay raise in God knows how long. I mean, it, you know, it's just ridiculous. And, uh, I mean, we do journalists, generally speaking, are in this because we believe in it, right? Uh, but we're not in it to make uh, a fortune. But at the same time, we have to survive, and you know, people have to pay their bills, and and you have to make it something where the talented people who do this work, this important work, uh, are able to to do their jobs without having to worry about paying rent. And this job action, for those of you who are hearing about it for the first time, it's 24 hours. It is all of the journalists at uh, the Chicago Tribune, but it is more than that. It is some of the journalists across the country who work for institutions owned by Alden. Uh, Greg said that they estimated that there were going to be well over 200 people across the country uh, doing a job action, basically a one-day's strike. And um, Chicago was going to be the focus of it. So today, don't if if you're out and about, don't buy a Chicago Tribune. If you read it digitally, close that tab. Don't open it. If you're on social media and you see some sort of Chicago Trib social media post, ignore it. Don't engage with it. Uh, don't like it. Don't spend too much time on it. 
that's how we can help these folks. Because Greg Pratt told me that every time they try to get old and to talk, the first thing that they hear is, well, you know, we want cuts to your um, retirement plan and cuts to your health care. Um, yeah. That's where we're going to start. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And, and Greg is a great guy and, and uh, has done so much uh, as well, along with others there on the union front. And, and it's absurd what, what they've been going through and the, the resistance. And, and look, I, I mean, you know, these... I, I, personally, I don't get it. I mean, if I'm a <laughs> if I'm a wealthy person uh, in business, I, the idea of grabbing uh, media companies and squeezing them to death, I, I don't quite get how you're sleeping at night. Um, maybe that's just me and being that cute idealist again. But um, you know, this this could be worked out real easily. This could be worked out real easily and fairly, and the company would still make plenty of money. And uh, you know things things could get better here you could have a more robust uh chicago tribune with you know a staff that is not dealing with distractions from any of this nonsense um and i i, I truly hope uh that uh, that people will pay attention to this because it's important and you're seeing it a lot too this is there have been other media organizations that have, have had strikes lately uh unfortunately you're also seeing a lot of cuts that have been happening at the la times and uh, Sports Illustrated sort of effectively shutting down and and stuff. So it's a it's a bad time. It's a time when people uh, need to appreciate the the folks out there who are doing the work to stay on top of politics and inform them about things and theater you know do theater mm-hmm. reviews and take pictures and uh, you know the whole nine yards. So uh, it's 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 essential. It's essential from tiny towns to big cities like this one. And uh, so I hope people show their support to all my friends over there yeah. um, and, and, you know, and Jay supporting Robinson, journalism in general. Who's, of course, the media commentator based out of New York. You know, he was talking about Alden and even Gannett about how they don't view these publications as a public service. They view them as assets that are on the wane and they can be picked up for a relatively low price. And then we squeeze every last ounce of um, profit out of it, and then we um, just throw away the hulk, the husk that's left. And nobody wants to see the Chicago Tribune. It's just too uh, storied a newspaper for this to happen. Um, Mr. Hupke, thank you for dropping everything to talk to me today, as I know you always do. You're like, Joan, you run across the newsroom going, Joan Esposito's calling, Joan Esposito's calling. (laughs) At least that's more how like I envision living, it. More like my li- or it's mainly my living room rather than the newsroom. But, you know, <laughs> okay. same thing. Right. Same the dog, thing. The dog same gets thing. alarmed, trust me. The dog's <laughs> like, oh, don't need help. There goes Rex. Uh, <laughs> always good to talk to you, my friend. Always good to talk to you, too. We are going to take a break for news. We'll be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Take it away, Ian. Yeah, take it away, Ian. It's going to be a bumpy ride. <laughs> Joan Esposito. Whoa, that's an explosive sentence. On WCPT 820. Yesterday, we had a um, interesting, one might also say kind of chaotic, city council meeting. Uh, I was trying to follow along with some of the uh, journalists who were there. 
and it was, I mean, they were firing out uh, social media posts like every few minutes about where people were and how journalists couldn't get their seats and and how people were protesting and uh, there was a resolution being considered uh, to support a ceasefire. Uh, there was also a resolution um, about the hostages being released and bodies being returned and everyone was up in arms. And it, in today's Illinois playbook, uh, Shia Kapos wrote about something that I didn't see happening. Um, apparently, our mayor, Brandon Johnson, uh, said to his top lieutenants that if they could not vote for the resolution that there be an immediate ceasefire, that they should um, take a walk. And um, at least a couple of them did. Uh, Alderman Walter Burnett, Jr. and uh, Stephanie Coleman the, um, all walked out of the chambers. Now, Pat Dowell and Emma Mitz weren't there. I don't know if that's related to the resolution or was um, something to do with something else, but... The lone Jewish member of the city council is Alder Deborah Silverstein. She opposed this resolution, and she said that she was disappointed in how the mayor handled the vote. She was hoping that the mayor could bring all the older people together and find some sort of consensus. Uh, it was eventually passed, but it was a tie vote, 23-23, Brandon Johnson, the tie-breaking vote, and the resolution to call for a ceasefire was passed. One of the people in chambers yesterday was our favorite alderman in the whole world, Raymond Lopez, who uh, joins us uh, to talk about his resolution about the hostages and Everything that went on, I don't know, uh, that wasn't a very cogent summary of what went on. Uh, Raymond, can you give me a better one of, of what you saw unfold in city council? Well, Joan, first off, happy Thursday to you on a beautiful 55-degree <laughs> Chicago February day. Yes. You and your listeners. Um, and I think your description of what happened probably is about as effective as government was yesterday. Um, because it was just a very chaotic scene on all levels, from the media trying to gain access to the public, trying to figure out how to navigate the new security rules, to aldermen wondering what exactly we were doing as we not only were discussing the ceasefire, but also punting on police arbitration for the third time. Um, it was just a very crazy, chaotic, and dare I say, unproductive city council day. Yeah, I want to get to the arbitration in a few minutes, but tell uh, the listeners about the resolution that you wanted the city council to vote on. Well, what we were going to introduce was a resolution, and we are still pursuing this, that calls for the immediate and unconditional surrender, a return, excuse me, of all of the kidnapped individuals taken on October 7th, as well as the, t the return of the 27 uh, remains of individuals who have died in captivity during that time or as part of this escalation. You know, I think before we talk ceasefire, we have to talk about 
dignity and following the rules of warfare described in the Geneva Convention for all of those who are spouting off their various preferred uh, UN resolutions and whatnot. You know, for 75 years, we said, you shall not take hostages. You shall not torture them. You shall not treat them inhumanely, cruelly. And we know that it has been the case for 117 days for those individuals who still remain in captivity. What I, uh, Deborah and Alderman Bennett Lawson, supported was putting forward the resolution that says, let's deal with them first. That should be non-controversial. Bring the hostages home. Um, But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. So the city council, in a tied decision, uh, ended up citing... Uh, with the mayor in approving the ceasefire resolution, which put a ceasefire ahead of calls for that release of hostages. Kind of get the impression from what Shia Kapos wrote that um, Walter Burnett and Stephanie Coleman were not supporters of this resolution. Well, it's my understanding that one was, one wasn't, and that two of the individuals who are going to support the mayor uh, weren't in the room as well. I know Alderman Dowell started her day in the room, and by the end of the day was gone. Emma Mitz uh, didn't make it uh, to the council. Um, but I think this is an extraordinary time. For the first time in four decades, we've had to have a mayor break not one but two ties in the chamber. And it has been when the extremists in the room keep pushing their agendas, forcing him to have to be the one to cast the deciding vote. And I just say that politically, you know, his allies are not putting him in the best of positions when they do that to him because he has no one to blame but himself for when the final casting vote is made. Did you talk at all to uh, Deborah Silverstein? After the resolution? After or before. Um, well, before we have been in um, conversation, um, trying to oppose what has been going on, trying to be supportive of her efforts to bring compromise, and contrary to what Rosanna and Daniel have said, she did reach out to them numerous times, and it was kind of a slap in the face to hear the chairman of the Health and Human Relations Committee say, oh, well, we just learn better as we go, uh, but I did my best. Actually, she did her best at avoiding compromise, at avoiding inclusion, um, and kept continuously stating that none of the things that Deborah was bringing up, like the rape of women, the, be- the killing and beheading of individuals, which has been caught on video, she kept downplaying and saying that all of those were just allegations, rumors, and unsubstantiated claims. And for someone to say that, even when it's been filmed on Hamas's own body just- cams, that's either misinformation, disinformation, or incredible ignorance. Or intentional ignorance. And I think that is the latter. Um, and it's unfortunate because that is what drove the conversation. And I think that's what drove this resolution. And as I said numerous times, if you want to have a conversation, you have to talk about the complete facts. And yes, war is ugly. All of us know this. It is unfortunate when there are civilian casualties in war. But to ignore the fact that there was a ceasefire, there was peace on October 6th until Hamas terrorists showed up to kill everyone they could find and kidnap anyone they wanted. Mm -hmm. You have to 
recognize that fact. You can't downplay or disregard that. And that, sadly, is what many, including our mayor, have chosen to do. And I think it is un- incredibly unfortunate that we are not using our posts as leaders to temper the conversations with truth, but keep falling for you know, misguided populism just to try and feel as though we are doing something. And again, my take on it is kind of like what we heard from J.B. Pritzker. Somebody asked him about what was going on in the city council about the resolution. He goes, you know, it really doesn't make a difference. Um, Even um, he said, I think it I don't think it'll have any real impact. And um, Lynn Sweet wrote in the Sun-Times The draft resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire doesn't recognize the reality that no one, not even President Joe Biden, can make a ceasefire happen right away. Um, So, yeah, I guess. But I guess everybody felt what? And let me me just say this. Hamas rejected a ceasefire two weeks ago. The same day we were having this discussion, they rejected it. So we're we're trying to convince the people fighting Mm -hmm. that they have to do what they don't want to do. That's not how this works. Yeah. And sadly, to bring this back home to Chicago, two weeks ago when this was discussed, or a week ago when it was discussed, we had individuals, students, shot in front of their schools. Mm-hmm. The day this was passed yesterday, three kids shot in their front of their schools, a block from their school. We're not having those conversations. We're not talking about the migrants. We're not talking about the violence. We're not talking about the disinvestment in our city. We've spent... Four months trying to figure out how to change the narrative for a terrorist attack against Israel. That is where our focus has been. We have a health commissioner in a health crisis who we haven't confirmed. We have all kinds of departmental vacancies we should be focusing on, but yet the mayor and his allies are focusing on this. And I think it's a mistake. I think it's a mistake, too. I think it is a complete and utter waste of time but but i hope they feel good you know they got their resolution they got it passed by of course the slimmest of all possible votes so you know maybe now they'll be ready to turn to some of the business of the city raymond we need to take a break when we come back i want to talk um a little more in depth about the chicago police board and what the city uh, city council did or did not do with how they work. Um, I'm talking to 15th Ward Alderman Raymond Lopez. We'll be back right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by 15th Ward Alderman Raymond Lopez. There was a city council meeting yesterday where there actually was, well, I was going to say there was other business, but when something is sort of tabled, does it still count as business? I guess there still had to be a vote on it. There was a there's been a big question about how the Chicago Police Board should work, especially for cops who are facing um, allegations serious enough that they could be suspended for a year or more or potentially dismissed, how those cases should be heard and who has the right to make some of these decisions has been a topic um, for uh, a while now. Um, tell me exactly what happened, Raymond. So as, you, as I may remind uh, you and your listeners, Joan, the mayor recently worked with the FOP to create a police contract, uh, but bifurcated it, uh, putting all of the 
the the labor related issues in one in one part of an ordinance to which was approved and putting all the disciplinary parts of the contract in a separate ordinance which has kind of been languishing back and forth between committee and the floor for over a month now the reality is that police and the fire are among the only individuals who cannot as a group of employees covered under a collective bargaining agreement go on strike contract or not, they have got to show up to work. Um, in exchange for that, they allow for their contracts to be negotiated by a third-party arbitrator with the city uh, who looks at what is being proposed on both sides and comes up with a happy medium, which they both have to basically agree to. And that's how we got to this point before the mayor decided to uh, divide the question, so to speak. Now, the question that we're all trying to figure out uh, publicly is, should there be a public participation process when it comes towards police disciplinary actions? The mayor, his allies, and a number of individuals want the newly formed police commission uh, to handle that. And the contract arbitrator said that that is not required, that there's a process in place that allows for a separate third party to come in if there are disagreements between city and union to make final decisions. And that has been the point of contention for this negotiation. Now, in order to reject what the arbiter, what the contract arbiter has awarded the union, 30 aldermen must say no in order to kick it back to discussions. And the mayor has not been able to get to that point. So rather than get to that point and either lose to individuals who support having a unified contract with what was originally awarded to the officers union, um, he's basically been kicking the can back and forth through procedural maneuvers to avoid any kind of defeat. Unfortunately for Chicago, the union sued yesterday and was given a restraining order uh, against the city, forcing them to basically comply with the arbitration until further resolution can be adjudicated. Basically took us to court and won because of the games being played, which I think, again, this was something that was political in nature. It was designed not to give the, the mayor the opportunity to lose, to try and save face as opposed to lose face, and really serves the public poorly because you avoid taking any kind of real leadership in this issue while leaving it to the court so that you could blame it on somebody else for doing your job for you. Um, I read that um, certain members of the FOP and uh, John Catanzaro were <clears throat> at the city council meeting. And when this happened, John Catanzaro apparently shouted out something like, you know, something along the lines of, and correct me if I'm wrong, see you in court if you like, if you have the courage to show up there. Was is did is that about right? Joan, I can't believe John Canzara shouted anything in public. <laughs> no, that, that was supposed to be funny. But. It's so out of character for him because you know he's so retiring. Character. It's so out of character for such an endearing man. No, he did. Um, and he's been growing in frustration. And, and to be perfectly honest, I understand his frustration. For a city that claims to love labor and support the labor movement, to try to separate and create new rules for collective bargaining agreements is something that he and nearly a dozen unions have stood against. 
And every time they tried to work in good faith with the mayor, they are led down a rabbit hole and kicked in the shins for doing it. And that has been a hallmark of this administration, no matter what the topic is. And I think that if you go to the negotiation table in good faith, you come up with an agreement, you expect the other side to agree to it. And sadly, this administration has not been forthcoming or forthright with the FOP. And that should make everyone who has any kind of dealings with this mayor suspect of their interactions with him, because you're only as good as your word in this business. And if your word isn't good, who's going to want to do business with you? Well, um, you and I both see John Cadenzaro very clearly, but just because he's um, over the top and a loudmouth doesn't mean he's always wrong either. Um, one last thing that I wanted to ask you before we um, wrap this up. I was a little curious about this. Um, I'm shifting to schools now because I was under the impression that the rule was that local school councils got to vote on whether or not they wanted a police present, police presence mm-hmm. at their schools. And yet I read the mayor said recently that he's against um, uh, police officers being at schools. Can he I'm not quite sure who put the rule in place about the local school councils voting. And maybe that rule can just be done away with by the mayor. Can you can you enlighten me here on how this whole thing works? So you are correct, Joan. It, under the Lightfoot administration, local school councils by the board were given the authority by the Board of Education to make a decision for themselves whether or not to keep or to reject having police officers in their in their buildings. Many schools opted to keep them. Now, Mayor Johnson is pushing his unelected school board to override the will of the local community and say, we're not going to have police officers, student resource officers in any of our schools. Rather, they're saying that we're going to provide resources for cultural enrichment, climate change ambassadors, and other things in lieu of police officers, because that is where their priority is going to be. But as we've seen just yesterday, you know, there's a a call for more police in schools to help keep kids safe, especially with the rise of hate and violence growing through social media. And as we saw at Sen High School, three students were shot a block from the building, and that school had opted on and not having officers there. So I think that refusing to listen to the community is a very dangerous path for progressives to walk down because then they become just like the individuals that they most despise. And this is the second time now where we've seen the mayor and his ultra-progressive left allies choose when democracy is important and choose when it is not. Well, as a parent, I certainly would want that kind of that kind of decision making power and one thing that doesn't get a lot of conversation and i don't know if there's um anybody in city council who's talking about this i think part of what has created a negative impression about cops at schools is that and you know this and i know this that there have been some principals who have abused that police presence you know anytime there's a disturbance yeah. in the hallway call the cop anytime um somebody's tardy call the cop oh we want these kids ticketed you know i mean i think that if you're going to have police at schools and God knows with the mass shooters we've seen, it is something that might make a lot of parents feel safer. 
there have to be rules for what that cop is there for and what that cop is not there for. They're not there to be some kind of enforcer for the principal. A hundred percent. I 100% agree, John, and that's actually something that I've always advocated as well, is that you can't have the first or most consistent interaction with our youth and officers be one that is negative. That you have to be able to build relationships in a positive way with our youth, and you can't do that if you have principals, teachers, and parents, quite frankly, saying, oh, the cops are going to get you if you don't do this or don't do that. Mm-hmm. But I think that the 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 converse to that is if you get rid of police officers, then are those teachers, staff, and security going to leave that building and address the issues that happen across the street? Because every time something happens in neighborhoods like mine, where we see gangbangers trying to recruit on the other corner, the answer we get from uh, uh, the principal, staff, and security universally is, I'm only responsible for the inside of this building. And you don't get to have it both ways. Either you're going to be responsible as a community stakeholder for the whole community, or you're not. Yeah, that's an that's an interesting that's an interesting point of view. And I, you know, as a, as a parent, I would not be averse to a police presence uh, in these days of mass shooters. But I also don't want that that cop used as some kind of a boogeyman, you know, patrolling the halls to make sure everybody is quiet when they're supposed to be quiet. That's just wrong. Right. Um, Raymond Lopez, thank you so much for uh, joining us. I know that yesterday's city council meeting was crazy, and um, I appreciate you uh, coming on to talk about all the stuff that most of us couldn't see. <laughs> My pleasure is always to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And books are near and dear to my heart, and nothing has caused me more consternation than seeing book bans take place across the United States, uh, a tsunami of, of book bans. Recently, um, there has been, and believe it or not, from some Republican legislators, um, there's been some progress in pushing back against book bans. Republicans in Florida, in the state house, are trying to make it a little bit more difficult for people who come in and file paperwork to challenge like a thousand books or a hundred books at a time. Um, and I guess I feel good about it. I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, it's certainly better than nothing. I, uh, I asked Deborah Caldwell Stone, who's the director uh, for the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom, to join us today to see whether or not it's time for me to uh, celebrate and have a parade over this. Uh, Deborah, how are you? I'm fine, Joan. Thanks for having me back. So in Florida now, I gather that there are some Republicans at the statehouse level who, A, are less beholden to Ron DeSantis now that he is politically weakened, but also um, trying to take a stand. I, you know, I can't, they're not trying to overturn all the bans. They're certainly trying, not trying to get rid of Don't Say Gay, but they're doing something at least. What do you see when you look at Florida right now? Well, we're not seeing, you know, I, I don't think. I mean, we're certainly glad to see that there's legislation that is 
recognizing the reality of empowering advocacy groups like Moms for Liberty and others to bring mass book ban requests to school boards and public libraries. And, you know, you know, the what's, what has happened is that a very few people are filing the majority of challenges, and they're going from school district to school district, demanding the removal of hundreds, if not thousands, of books all at once. I think the record was a demand to remove some 1,600 books from one school district, um, all based on, like, databases like Book Looks that look for reasons to remove books from libraries and schools uh, across the country. Um, and making, trying to make it more true that this is actually a movement of individual parents seeking to protect their own kids, right? And that's simply not what, what's happening. Journalists have documented how just a very few people, two, three people, are bringing the majority of challenges and are being are enabled by Florida law to clear school libraries of hundreds if not thousands of books all at once uh, and propagating the lie that librarians are providing books that are obscene or harmful to minors when in fact they're none, nothing like that. Um, you know, these are simply young adult books that deal with sex ed, for example, or works of literature like The Bluest Eye, but because they don't suit the taste of these individuals, they've been given the power to clear books. Uh, out of school libraries. And I think that's what they're reacting to. I have to say that we've been able to begin to see the actual financial cost of book bans. It takes up hours of uh, a librarian's time. It takes up hours of an educator's time. And those are all costs that are taxed to school boards. It takes a, a library professional and educational professional out of the classroom. And they have to be paid for their time to review these thousands of books and make decisions about them. And, you know, it's, it's just, you know, uh, there is one instance where they were able to document that a challenge to some 50 books, uh, and this was in Virginia Beach, Virginia, cost the school board $400,000. Oh. Think of what that money could do if it was put in the classroom. Think of what that money could, was, could do if it was put into hiring additional staff. You know, but that's where the money is going. And so I think by... This law is really intended to limit challenges to people who actually have a stake in the school district, parents, you know, individuals who are taxpayers in the school district. And, you know, even that alone might really cut off some of these more active groups in Florida that have spurred these challenges to thousands of books. I think that's what we're seeing. We're not seeing a retreat from the idea that books should be banned. We're seeing a retreat from the idea that, and, and you know, that certain organizations can find loopholes in the law that allow them to cripple school libraries across the state of Florida. You know, book banning is not a great look, even for Republicans, and especially when you highlight ridiculous situations like the one that were that was highlighted today, um, that one parent has succeeded in intimidating um, uh, the Indian River School District into defacing picture books like In the Night Kitchen by requiring them to draw clothing on the naked Mickey scene in that book. 
you know, and, you know, it's just it's just incredible. And I think that people are beginning to push back on this idea that um, that, you know, that these books, you know, that that censorship is a solution to all these issues in schools. When, in fact, what's needed is more money, more staffing, more dedication to the needs of the students themselves rather than the needs of advocacy groups. One of those reporters that you're talking about is Judd Legum. Judd, I've mentioned him on this show before. He writes a newsletter uh, called Popular Information. And it is, if you know, if you're only going to follow one, I would say that's a good one to follow because rather than giving you like many newsletters do, kind of an overview of the news, he takes one subject and really does a deep dive. Often, you know, he's following a money trail or he did uh, just last week a report on what was happening in Florida with some of the Republican legislators uh, pushing back on those who ban uh, volumes, no pun intended, of books at a time. Here's part of, of what he wrote. Um, the majority of book challenges in the United States, the majority The majority of book challenges in the United States came from 11 people. Two of the most prolific, Bruce Friedman and Vicki Baggett, hail from Florida. Friedman and Baggett have each challenged hundreds of books in Clay and Escambia County, respectively. Um, And here's popular information. You know, Judd talked to uh, Mr. Friedman and he previously told Judd Legum that one of the books he challenged was The Girl from the Sea. The Girl from the Sea, an award-winning graphic novel, novel about a 15-year-old girl who develops romantic feelings for another girl. Bruce Friedman told Judd Legum he challenged that book because students are not in school to learn how to be better lesbians. Deborah, explain how that is skewed thinking, please. <laughs> well, what it is, it's a, uh, an individual's belief that their beliefs sh- should apply to every individual and every parent, every student, every child in uh, the school district that they're targeting. It, that It's a belief that, you know, we need to deny the very existence of gay and lesbian persons, transgender persons, that we need to push them back in the closet and that young people should be treated as really young idiots who have no awareness of the fact that there are people who are gay, lesbian, or transgender. And, you know, it just ignores reality. Um, and it really treats our libraries rather than, uh, you know, as forums for discovering new ideas, places to gain empathy and understanding for how people live in the world and about people who are not like us into little centers of indoctrination that reflect one person's religious beliefs or moral beliefs. And that really should not be the case. We should be celebrating school libraries as places where children learn a love of reading, see themselves reflected in the stories on the shelves of the library, and leave school with a commitment to being, you know, lifelong readers who seek out new information, new ideas, and gain, you know, be able to gain understanding about important issues without being subjected to that kind of indoctrination. You know, I, um, there's a gay man uh, who I follow on social media, and 
you know, ages ago when when this was first in the news almost on a daily basis about book banning, especially going after sentiments like somehow uh, books with gay characters uh, cause kids to be gay. And he said, you know, um, when I was growing up, I read a lot of books where the protagonists were straight and it never made me straight. I don't understand somehow. I don't think it's really a question when you get deep down. People who want to ban books that have LGBTQ content, I don't think that they really believe that somehow it's going to um, cause a gay kid to, uh, or a straight kid to become gay if they read about this kind of thing. I think it is something darker. I think it is an effort to get gay people back in the closet because there are some straight people um, who just don't want to know that gay people are there. They want to think of them as some kind of aberration um, and they don't want to deal with it. They don't want to see what, see it. They don't want to, you know, go to gay weddings. They just, they just want it to stop. Deborah, what are your thoughts well, on what's at the root of some of this? Well, I, I agree. We see, you know, we receive all these reports of censorship in school libraries and public libraries across the country. And we see the verbatim demands to censor books. And over and over again, I'm seeing a demand to remove a book simply because there's a gay character in the book, simply because there's a transgender character in the book that even admits that, uh, uh, you know, that there is such a thing as homosexuality, that there's same-sex attractions between human beings. Mm -hmm. And um, and it absolutely comes from a belief that such, I mean, they, they say this is obscene, this is inappropriate, this is nothing, any innocent child, and when they talk about innocent children, they're talking about 16 and 17-year-olds, should know about before they're adults. Uh, and not even then. Uh, we don't want gay books in our library. They shouldn't be there. They can't, you know, and yes, they say that this will corrupt children, but I think you're right. I think that this is an effort to send a definite message to those folks in the community who are gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual, uh, or non-conforming genders that they don't belong. And, you know, when you remove a book from the library that reflects the lives and experiences of LGBTQ people, it not only censors that book, it sends a message to those who would read that book, whose lives are reflected by it, that they don't belong and that they aren't part of society. And so I think it is part of this larger movement to really take away all the civil rights and, and that have been gained in the last couple of decades by gay and transgender people and, and to roll back the clock to 1952 or even later. Um, I, you know, it's, you know, it's not impossible to look at the effort to uh, ban CRT to take our racial discourse back to before 1952 as well and and to try to pretend that the world is not the diverse and complex place it is and try to deny children and students adolescents access to that information yeah i'm talking to deborah caldwell stone from the american library association we're going to take a break and be back with more after this 
Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Deborah Caldwell Stone, who is the director of the Office for Intellectual Freedom at the American Library Association. We're talking about, um, I guess, a glimmer of hope in Florida where some legislators are trying to stop the practice of one or two or three people challenging and banning and um, large numbers of of books, that that's uh, something that should be um, something, a process that should be initiated by parents and in smaller numbers. There is a Florida rep, uh, Dana Trabolsi, who chairs the House Education Quality Subcommittee in the Florida legislature. Um, Dana introduced a measure that would assess a processing fee of $100 for each objection to a material by a resident or parent whose student is not enrolled in the school where the material is located. Apparently, anybody gets uh, five free objections, but after that, if you're not a parent with somebody in that school system, you're going to pay $100 for every objection. Do you think something like this is going to be effective, Deborah? Well, it certainly might be effective for mass uh, mass book challenges like the one that uh, Ms. Baggett brings. Uh, I think the estimate was is that if she had actually been required to pay for all the challenges that she filed, and remember, a challenge is a demand to censor a book. You know, if she had to pay for all of it, it would have cost her close to twenty thousand dollars to do that. And certainly that will make most people think twice about imposing their views and beliefs on all the students in a community. You know, and I want to say in all sincerity, you know, if a parent has a concern, I fully support that parent's right and ability to go to a librarian or an educator in a school district and raise that concern and opt their child out of an assignment, uh, choose different books for their child, make different choices for their child. And I know that both librarians and teachers are more than happy to work with parents on those issues. Um, so, you know, with all that, I still I think this is uh, might be one way of discouraging the, this effort to sanitize schools and libraries of any thought that doesn't comport with a mm-hmm. particular group's more moral or political or religious agenda. You know, there has to be some limit to it. And given that libraries really are First Amendment hubs, you know, First Amendment institutions, they are supposed to be places for people to find information, people including students, and that there is a First Amendment right to enter and use the resources of a library, and that governments can't engage in the kind of viewpoint discrimination that's urged by these book banners. You know, I think it's important to place some due process protections there for the right of the reader and the right of the students and the rights of the parents who are actually in the school to have access to the resources that have been created by trained educational professionals for their use. There was a statement, and I'm trying desperately to remember what, I think it came out of Florida, you would, you would know, correct me if I'm wrong, <clears throat> where some local or state government officials said that the only books 
that should be in libraries are books that support the government and the government's point of view. And I thought to myself that that was very scary rhetoric. Did you see that quote as well? I, well, I've not only seen that those statements, I've seen statements in other communities, other states as well. It's been a leading argument by the states who are fighting uh, to keep laws that are being, well, let me start over again there. Uh, but you understand that there are lawsuits right now challenging censorship laws in states like Arkansas and Texas. And, uh, you know, when those laws are challenged and the uh, Library users, the students, ask for those laws to be overturned on First Amendment grounds. The argument is, well, the library belongs to the state, and it's uh, uh, government speech. And we should be able to remove books at will. We should be able to put books in at will. We should be able to do whatever we want. And I have to tell you, the courts have universally rejected that argument. They see libraries for what they are, as a community resource for distributing information to the people in a nonpartisan way that recognizes the information needs of all the people in the community and serves all the people in the community without putting a thumb on the scale or allowing a politician or an elected official to dictate what people can read. That's never been the role of the government. The courts have made it clear that libraries are places where there should not be any such viewpoint discrimination. But states want to defend their censorship laws in Florida, in Texas, in Arkansas, and their argument universally has been that libraries are creatures of government that need that elected officials can tell people what to read and how to read it. We've been busy pushing back against that argument. The Freedom to Read Foundation um, is engaged in litigation and supporting individual plaintiffs in lawsuits fighting against these laws. Uh, and we've been very successful. Every time the states like Florida or Texas try to raise this as an argument, uh, the courts have rejected it. And we're very pleased to see that the courts are following the rule of law, are upholding the Constitution, and protecting everyone and everyone's individual right to read, every parent's right to make choices for their child without having to listen to other parents or advocacy groups like Moms for Liberty. Um, you know, it's uh, but it is something that we're hearing, and people should understand that that is a lie. It really is a lie. Libraries have existed from time immemorial to provide information to the people about important topics, provide different points of view so people can make up their own minds, make their own decisions about how they want to live, who they want to vote for, what issues they want to support, issues they don't want to support. And libraries have been there to do that. And not only that, but libraries have been there to enable people to live their best lives, to get education, improve their job skills, uh, get themselves into college, uh, encourage early reading skills, a love of reading. You know, libraries are such wonderful community institutions, and they should not be seen as, you know, a, a tool for an indoctrinating the public in the view of a particular official or a particular group. I want to circle back to something that you mentioned earlier in our discussion that I think deserves a little more attention. You mentioned that there's an effort now to go to some books, particularly books for kids, and add clothing where um, 
an illustration shows somebody without clothing. And I was I've been thinking about that, Deborah. Isn't that a violation of copyright? I mean, I can't just pick a book up off the shelf and, you know, add a couple of paragraphs or, write, you know, my own illustrations and put it back on the shelf. I mean, aren't there laws against uh, altering books this way? Well, I will tell you that if you purchase the book yourself, uh, and this probably applies to libraries as well, you own that physical object, you can do what you want with it. You can't sell it. You can't put it into the stream of commerce. And, you know, but I will tell you that whether or not it's legal or not to the face an individual book, um, I will tell you that it is absolutely contrary to the Library Bill of Rights and our Code of Ethics here at ALA. You know, it shouldn't be that one person's distaste for nudity should deny people the full expression of a creator's work. And, you know, whether it's Maurice Sendak Sendak with uh, In the Night Kitchen um, or other authors' books, uh, you know, it should if you borrow a book from the library, it should represent the author's views and the author's views alone and should not be censored or expurgated or altered in any way to reflect the moral taste of an individual or a group in the community. Um, it just goes against everything libraries stand for. Again, it circles back to the idea that information is presented and you're welcome to make up your own mind. You can put the book back on the shelf if you don't like it, but others want to read that book and it's not up to the individual who doesn't like the book to deny that opportunity to read the book in its entirety, to re, you know, see it as the author intended it, as the illustrator intended it. You know, it does go to that deeper, darker thing about anything that touches on sex, that nudity is something to be ashamed of, that nudity is not a state that we're not all sometimes in at some point or another. You know, teaching that bodily shame and associating, you know, Claiming that nudity is automatically obscene, again, another misrepresentation uh, of the truth. Um, but, uh, you know, it absolutely is something that is denying the rights of the readers in that community to find and discover the author's work without any censorship, without any emendation imposed by others. I will tell you that this is not something that's new. You know, I can tell you stories from the 80s and 90s of, you know, even librarians using whiteout to paint a diaper on Mickey in in the night kitchen. But we've long had policies uh, for best practices in ALA that uh, counsel that libraries should not be in the business of editing a work or censoring a work in part or in whole. And this is certainly censorship of a work. Now, it's possible for the author to try to exit or the author's estate to exercise the rights here and and demand that uh, this be reversed. I can't predict what the courts might do with that. uh, But, you know, it's certainly something that could, you know, could spur outrage by an author and bring, you know, raise the specter of a lawsuit, you know, which I would be cautious about. You don't want to be spending your hard, you know, those are my hard-earned dollars that are supporting that school district, mm-hmm. and I don't want it expended on on lawsuits to defend a censorship decision like this. Well, Deborah, then I think that I have the right to uh, go to libraries and put naked pictures in books. What do you think? Oh, 
no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not so much. No, we should respect the, you know, librarians work very hard to correct, you know, make those collection decisions and to make sure that the books on the shelf are there because they were chosen under a collection development policy, you know, and and that's actually a conversation I've been having is remembering that, you know, librarians don't collect books willy-nilly. They don't create a collection, curate a collection willy-nilly. They have written policies. They keep in mind the information needs of their community. They, When they're creating a collection for younger readers, they keep in mind child development and pedagogy that is important to keep in mind when you're collect, putting books together. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, we want. I, I want to encourage everyone to remember that librarians are professionals, like doctors, like lawyers, uh, and and respect that the work they're doing. And you know, certainly you can request that materials be added to the library's collection, and that they look at something to be reviewed and added to the collection. But you know, trust the librarians to have a wide range of materials for everyone's taste and a willingness to listen when people believe that the li- the collection is missing something, and to add that book to the collection or those materials to the collection. But you know, we want everyone to find books on the shelf that are the result of that process, that professional process of using policy and abiding by the live, uh, you know, all their professional training okay. and their. No naked pictures from me. Um, Sorry, I went on a rant there. I apologize. (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. It kind of, my my comment kind of deserved it. Uh, Deborah Caldwell-Stone is with the American Library Association. We are going to take a break for news. She and I are going to be back to talk more about uh, book banning. And we're going to talk about race. We're going to talk about what's happening in Colorado when we come back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. And I'm talking with uh, Deborah Stone Caldwell, um, who is, wait a minute, did I just say your name backwards, Deborah? Deborah Caldwell he, he Stone. Did, but that's fine. <laughs> oh my goodness, my goodness, what a day I'm having. Um, she's the director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom. Uh, we were talking about some of the recent reporting uh, that has been done on. Uh, well, there was a Judd Legum's reporting on Florida's effort to potentially rein in mass book bannings. There's also some things going on in in Colorado, if I'm not mistaken. Can you tell us about that? Well, recently there was a consortium of conservative groups uh, that included Moms for Liberty, a number of family value groups, uh, religious conservative religious groups, uh, that demanded that uh, a county prosecutor bring criminal charges uh, against the school district uh, in Colorado Springs for having books they didn't like on the shelf of the school library. Are we talking about the same thing? Yes, yes, that's it. Yeah, and where does you know? Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, at, at any rate, they sent a letter last November to the district attorney demanding the criminal prosecution of the school uh, superintendent, the administrators, the library staff, the school staff, um, and the district attorney. Um, 
very, you know, very promptly told them no. Um, he kind of, just, you know, he didn't. He told them quite frankly that none of the books they, that they were complaining about even began to meet to the legal standard for obscenity, and that there was no evidence that any kind of crime had been committed in having the books available to minors in the school district, and told them no that he would not be uh, prosecuting uh, anyone. Uh, because simply because they didn't like the books in the school library. Mm. Um, and, and, and it's, you know, we're seeing more and more. I mean, there is a pernicious lie that circulates right now, and it's being circulated by the group, many of the advocacy groups that would like to remove LGBTQ books from the library, books dealing with race and racism from the library. And their argument is, is that there is a statute on the book that, punishes adults for distributing harmful to minors material, quote-unquote, and that that they believe this material is harmful to minors, and thus the librarian is committing a crime, the teacher is committing a crime, the school is committing a crime. And that's all based both on a misunderstanding of harmful to minors, which is really a legal way of saying obscene for minors, that this is material that the courts deem to be obscene, that is sexually explicit, material that's only created to create sexual excitement that has no redeeming literary, social, political, artistic value, Um, and that because they don't perceive value in the work, that it should be deemed illegal for everyone to read. And that's not how this works. And But they try to circulate this lie. They try to intimidate librarians. They try to intimidate teachers. They try to intimidate school boards and library boards by arguing that simply by touching on sex, gender identity, um, sexual orientation, having a passage in a book that encounter, you know, describes a romantic encounter between two adults, that that makes the book obscene, and that's absolutely not the case. You know, you have to look at the work as a whole, and if it has literary value, if it's artistic, you know, it's like Michelangelo's David, you know, uh, you know, if it has that artistic value, that literary value, that educational value, the, the First Amendment protects it, and the Supreme Court has repeated this over and over again. But they believe, they rely on people not having an understanding of obscenity law, they rely on misusing the phrase harmful to minors, and they try to intimidate and threaten people with legal action. That doesn't happen. When, when uh, over and over again, when prosecuting attorneys actually receive complaints against librarians, against teachers, they reject the charges and rule uniformly that there is absolutely no evidence of the crime and that the books in question are not obscene, either for adults or minors. Um, We can look at what happened in Virginia Beach, where an individual tried to have the book Gender Queer, and Sarah Maas's novel, A Court of Mist and Fury, declared obscene in Virginia. And the judge not only rejected that uh, effort and said there was no evidence that the books began to meet the standards for obscene materials under federal law or Virginia law, but also decided to overturn the statute he used to sue to have the books declared obscene, saying that it was an unconstitutional prior restraint on free speech. Wow. Um, That wasn't what they bargained for. No. And, again, they've tried to file charges in Campbell County, Wyoming. 
the special prosecutor rejected it, said no crime had been committed and that the books didn't begin to meet the test for obscenity. Um, we Same thing happened in Michigan. Um, there was a school district, the Rockford School District uh, in Michigan, you know, received a massive book challenge to some 60 books. And the school board voted to retain all the books in the school library. And so the parent, the, the parents' rights group that tried to get the books removed sued in Michigan courts, arguing that the uh, district attorney should be compelled to file criminal charges against the school district. And the judge dismissed the lawsuit and said there was absolutely no evidence that the books began to meet the standard for obscenity in Michigan and that they all had literary value and thus there could be no criminal prosecution based on it. This is the one thing that everyone should take away is that a lot of what the book challengers are relying on is the fact that people don't have a good understanding of obscenity law and that people will accept their lies about the content of the books or the idea that simply touching on sex or sexuality makes something obscene. That's absolutely not the case. We know that, you know, there are books that touch on these topics that are developmentally relevant and appropriate for young children when the topic is handled for the, at, at their age level and at their uh, level of understanding that we, we know that um, simply talking about the fact that someone is gay is not obscene, even, you know, but these groups, you know, you noticed this earlier, groups are trying to put people back in the closet. Groups are trying to shift the needle on what is considered appropriate and reading for everyone. And that this is one of their tactics. And so I encourage everyone to really have an understanding of what the law says about this and not automatically accept the claim that a book is obscene because somebody's saying it. Really look at the book as a whole understand it for yourself uh, and encourage your neighbors and friends to do the same thing and encourage your school boards and library boards to ask for actual evidence for the claims that some of these book banners are making. Because when you ask for the evidence, they don't have any. Often you even find out they haven't even read the books themselves. They're just going off that list of bad books that's circulating around from uh, groups like Moms for Liberty or No Left Turn in Education. You know, you talk about these um, these people, whether they be lawyers or whether they be government officials or whether they be judges who've pushed back. One of the things that I found so disheartening, especially when this first started, and especially we've seen uh, this happen time and time again in Florida. Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the Timothy Snyder book on tyranny. And he it's a very small book. And it's a very important book. And he talks about how tyranny takes hold and there are lessons for how to avoid tyranny. And one of his most famous points in that book is don't obey in advance. And time and time again, I would read articles about school administrators in Florida who were so terrified of running afoul of either a law that had just been passed or a law that they felt was about to be passed that they would, um, they, to they told at one point their teachers um, that unless uh, there was a book in their classroom that had absolutely been approved, just assume it's not okay and, you know, don't, don't lend it. I mean, there was video of teachers with t 
tape over their books, with tarps over their books so that no students could get them. And it just seemed like so many people in positions of power, instead of resisting, were obeying in advance. And I found that heartbreaking. What did you think when you saw that happen? It was heartbreaking for us as well. You know, we kept trying to figure out a way that we could encourage administrators and encourage and support librarians who are being faced with these demands to remove books before they've even been proven to be bad. And we're finding over and over again when the reviews actually take place, um, and these are reviews that are now mandated by Florida law. This, these are the DeSantis laws that, you know, the don't say gay laws, the, the laws that targeted school libraries. Books are being returned to the shelf. But, you know, what that means is that there might be a whole year where books were unavailable to particular students who might never have the opportunity to see those books again. Or, you know, it, it's just, it is, as you say, heartbreaking. And one would wish that some folks would exercise the same moral courage as the El Paso district attorney or the superintendent in Rockford, Michigan, to stand up and say, wait, we're not going to do this simply because you say it. We're going to actually do a fair process and look at the books and say, you know what? You're wrong. These are not illegal materials. These are not inappropriate for our students. They're shelved appropriately. High school books are in the high school books for younger kids kids or in the elementary school, and we're going to stand by our library professionals and our education professionals who are trained to create the libraries and the classrooms that are necessary to raise up uh, young people who are educated to take control and, you know, they're empowered to take control of their lives and be successful adults in society. You know, and I think some of that comes from us. We have to know who we're voting for. We have to know who we're placing on library boards and school boards and know that they will support their li- their education professionals, their administrators, when they do take the step of standing up and make it policy to stand up to these groups so that mm-hmm. we don't have hecklers vetoes all around the country. Yeah. It's why we have Unite Against Book Bans. It's not as a, you know, it's a it's an initiative and it's a coalition of some 200 partners across the country, publishers, librarians, authors, booksellers, civil liberties groups, um, nonprofits that support education and opportunity for young people and gay rights. And we've, you know, we've created this space and place for people to find the tools they need to speak up at board meetings, to empower themselves, to ask questions of candidates. And it's, just, uh, uh, you know, we, we know that this is what needs to be done. We need to get down to the local level, encourage people to know what's going on in their communities and empower them with the tools they need to speak up and, and resist the effort to censorship. And as you say, you know, not obey immediately, but ask the hard questions yeah. and stand up. Stand up for the students, stand up for the teachers, stand up for the librarians and stand up for our Constitution. Deborah Caldwell Stone and I are going to be right back talking more about books and book banning right after this. 
Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. And joining me is Deborah Caldwell-Stone, who's the director of the American Library Association's Office for Intellectual Freedom. We have been talking about a book banning. And, Deborah, we've talked about efforts to clothe the naked and uh, eliminate the gay people. But race has also been one of the things that seems to uh, make a book vulnerable to the book banners. Where do where do the efforts to ban books that talk about race or interracial dating or all that kind of thing? Are they lessening by any chance? I think that um, they've pivoted to really hone in their focus on books dealing with LGBTQ persons and their lives and interests, Um, but it's not entirely absent anymore. I think the claim that books that schools and libraries were promoting what was called critical race theory, but was simply a reevaluation of our history with race and racism here in the United States from the viewpoint of those who suffered under slavery and racism, um, you know, was uh, a moment in time. I think what they're doing now is they're really focusing on DEI efforts and trying to remove any effort to consider diversity or inclusion in corporations, in libraries, in universities, in schools. And, you know, they've been pretty effective at it uh, by arguing that everything should be colorblind and ignoring all the past injustices of the past. So we still see challenges to books that, I mean, I will tell you that what we see is that, you know, the books that are being challenged are primarily LGBTQ-themed, but books that involve the lives and experiences of African Americans, uh, persons of colors, American Indians, are also frequently challenged. Not quite as much as LGBT. Yeah. Um, It's, you know, I think that it's that idea of the other that often comes into play. Um, And... Mm. um, you know, people are, there are parents, individuals who are uncomfortable with the other, and it's easier to go after a book when you perceive the protagonist as the other, or someone who's outside the realm of society. And, um, you know, so we're still seeing some of it. We're still seeing people who, you know, not as often, not at the height of the, the CRT fads uh, of a, about two years ago, but we still see complaints of people claiming that books make white people feel ashamed and thus shouldn't be on the shelves of a library. You know, um, it is, February is traditionally Black History Month. Because there is a focus on black history, does that mean that February will likely see more challenges uh, for books that deal with race, or do those things not correlate? Um, They don't always correlate, but I will tell you what does correlate. What we're seeing is uh, demands by groups uh, that are opposed to diversity or groups that don't want to see other groups' lives and experiences lifted up that they should there should not be a display for Black History Month in libraries or schools, mm. that there should not be a display for Women's History Month. There shouldn't be a display for Pride Month. And, and so we're seeing 
an increasing number of policies out of conservative areas that bar libraries from putting on any kind of book display that celebrates uh, individuals because of their ethnicity, race, or back you know or background um, or their identity um, as a means uh, because it will make other you know it will make essentially um, those who disagree feel bad or those who are not those persons feel bad when in fact what these you know displays do is they make books available alert people to the fact that there is a rich history of uh, in of to be discovered in the lives and experiences of black Americans, of women, of gay people, um, and that they are full participants in society. And when you take away the book displays, you deny, you know, and hide the, you know, in a sense, you know, not elevate the books, not elevate them to the awareness of the reading public, then, you know, it's another way of telling people you don't belong and another way of trying to maintain the status quo and the myth that there is one culture and one way of being and not allowing the fact that there are other ways of being, other people who achieve available to Mm -hmm. learn about in libraries. Just out of curiosity, you know, we here in Illinois, our Secretary of State, Alexei Giannoulis, was the driving force behind uh, a law here that says that um, if a library bans books, they forego any state funding. And a lot, of, uh, most of the libraries in Illinois rely on state funding. Have uh, Have you seen any other states uh, maybe copy that? We're seeing a number of states consider um, a similar law. Um, we're seeing states also consider laws that rely on anti-discrimination statutes and civil rights promises in state constitutions, uh, as well as prescribing the need to use due process to have a strict policy in place, to not remove books when a book is challenged, and to make sure that everyone is heard and that the book has a fair hearing before it's removed from the shelf of the library. And so we're seeing a number of these anti-book ban bolts bills come forward from the states. Um, I'm not, uh, uh, California has actually passed uh, a law that bars book banning in school libraries on the grounds of discrimination and has put some teeth behind that. And I'm confident in the next legislative session, we'll see some other bills come forth. Uh, I think New Jersey is the one that's, New Jersey is considering a bill that's very much modeled on the Illinois bill, but we're seeing, as I said, we're seeing other bills. And I want to say how grateful we are, just as we're grateful for those like the El Paso District Attorney standing up and saying no, we're grateful. Mm -hmm for those legislators who recognize the harm being done to our students, to our communities, to our civil liberties, and trying to find a solution and and trying to put that solution in place before this goes too far. Uh, And, you know, we do track this, and I'm happy to share information about the bills under consideration. Uh, I, you know, and so, you know, it's just one, it is, as you say, we're seeing glimmers of light at the end of the tunnel, and, you know... (laughs) 
you know, we're seeing, you know, legis- even conservative legislators recognizing the harms of book banning. Uh, we're seeing, you know, uh, district attorneys and administrators recognizing and standing up to the empty threats that these groups make. And, you know, we're seeing individuals and legislators really committed to defending the First Amendment. But that's one reminder I will make, and that is that when we support it, when we adhere to it, the First and Fourteenth Amendment are powerful policies that we should support our elected officials in enforcing and applying to every situation. You know, we, you know, the whole idea of book banning ignores the First Amendment. The idea that we ban books because of who wrote them, or who's in them, or whose, you know, whose identity is mm-hmm. uh, recognized in them, is a form of discrimination. You know, and the, you know, I, I remind you that the uh, Office for Civil Rights at the Department of Education is actually encouraging individuals to report book banning in school districts that might be creating a hostile educational environment for young people because they're banning all the gay books, because they're banning all the books on race. And they will investigate those situations. Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, Deborah, thank you so much for uh, taking us through this. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and my audience. Uh, Anytime, Joan. I'm I'm happy to join you, and I'll look forward to our next time to talk. Yes, me too. Deborah Caldwell-Stone, director of the ALA's Office for Intellectual Freedom. We're going to take a break and be back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820. You know, we talk to reporters all across the country about what is going on in Arizona and what's going on in Virginia and what's going on in Wisconsin. One state we haven't given quite enough attention to is California. Uh, We have invited Joe Garofoli to join us. He is the San Francisco Chronicle's senior political writer, and he is going to teach us everything we need to know about (laughs) California politics. Hey, Joe, how are you? Well, how, how much time do we have? We, do, oh. I don't know if I can do it in, in 30 minutes. We'll, we'll try. <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll give it a shot. I'm still and remember, <laughs> for those of us in Illinois, this will this will be politics 101. So you can keep it kind of yes. simple uh, for, for <laughs> us. Well, the one race that I think most people in Illinois have paid at least a little bit of attention to <clears throat> is the race for Diane Feinstein's seats. Um, and because there have been a lot of Democratic Congress people who we have seen over the last few years who have uh, decided that that's a race that is worth running. Katie Porter, Adam Schiff, Barbara Lee. Tell us about this particular race. And uh, also, I think you guys had a debate recently. Uh, we can talk about that in a minute. But first, is there anybody on the Democratic side that you think um, needs to be added to Barbara Lee, Adam Schiff, Katie Porter? Are there any sort of also rans that maybe are not as um, high profile? No, those are the three that are that are really have the experience and the knowledge of California. Uh, Schiff and, and uh, Barbara Lee have represented California in the legislature, state legislature, Congress for you know two and three decades in terms of Barbara Lee. Katie Porter, I'm sure your audience has seen her with her whiteboard yes. on uh, on the cable networks and such. 
Uh, and of course, Schiff has uh, been a uh, you know a thorn uh, in, in the president, uh, former President Trump's side, uh, and, and leading the, the impeachment uh, inquiry and stuff and such. And Barbara Lee was the was the one person who voted to give uh, former President Bush a blank check in the in the back uh, in the days after nine eleven. Uh, the only member of Congress. So it's a um, shift in the polls. Schiff is a is a slight lead. Porter running second, uh, uh, Lee third. Uh, Schiff is. Uh, we just got their uh, financials, and Schiff is, has thirty five million dollars in the bank. Which, if you know, remember in California, it costs two to four million dollars a week to run TV ads statewide. Uh, Porter is maybe about a third of that, and uh, and and Lee has a lot less. Um, the, one of the interesting dynamics, and this is a story we just broke today on, or wrote about today on, on SFChronicle.com, is revolves around the fourth big player in this race, and that's Steve Garvey. You and know, for- I have to tell you, Joe, being being a sad woman with no life and being a government geek, I actually watched a little bit about the Senate debate. And I don't know who the heck is prepping Steve Garvey, but I hope he fired them and has someone new. Talk to me about that. Well, Steve Garvey, for, for those of us, or for those of your audience who are probably under 55 or so, was an all-star first baseman for the Los Angeles Dodgers, later San Diego Padres. But in like the late 70s or in the 70s and the early 80s, he has had no, never run for office, never really been a player in politics before, and he kind of rolled out of bed uh, last fall and said, I'm going to run for the Senate. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he, uh, I, I talked to him like a few days before that, and he was, he was woefully unprepared for um, any, any kind of policy issue. He doesn't want to take on anything. And even though he voted for Trump twice, he wouldn't commit to voting for him again because in California – that is the kiss of death for, uh-huh. for any candidate. Yeah. So uh, and he was he was very ill prepared for a lot of the a lot of the uh, well, issues. You know, I mean, almost almost all of them. He I has, think particularly to, you know, in places where, um, you know, they think the Democrat is likely to win. I see the like it's like Herschel Walker. Um, nobody vetted that man. I'm sorry, but nobody sat down and did a deep dive in uh, into that man's past. Talk about a horrible candidate. But there was a cynicism. He's black and he's famous. And I think the Republican Party uh, thinks that sometimes they can get a bump with somebody who's a celebrity rather than trying to actually find a good candidate. Do you agree? Well, here in the the operative color here in California is uh, is green uh, because uh, they the Republicans here want a candidate who can either self fund or can raise a lot of money because as you said, John, because of their celebrity, uh, they're not getting that in Garvey. He only raised about seven hundred thousand dollars, which will buy you a bunch of road uh, you know yard signs in Los Angeles, maybe, but that's not much else. Um, he is. Um, uh, they have not. There are twice as many registered Democrats as Republicans in California. So Republicans already started disadvantaged. The reason that's so tough to get candidates is no, the donors don't want to invest in these races because you're tearing up money. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have not won since 2006 when Arnold Schwarzenegger won re-election. That's how long it's been. And Arnold Schwarzenegger 
probably couldn't get reelected now because the Republican Party in California has moved so far to the right. Wow. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I was um, I saw that um, I think it was HBO did that three part documentary on Schwarzenegger. And one of the parts was entirely devoted to his political life. And, you know, he may have he was a Republican, but in in the way that he governed, he didn't govern like he was wanted to do what was best for his party. I mean, at least the way I mean, obviously, you know, the documentary might not be quite as critical as uh, some people would be. But it was, you know, a man who wanted to to do things like he said when they brought these environmental proposals to him and he was like, well, you know, five percent. Well, why don't why don't we make it 25 percent? You know, like, let's go big. And he seemed to he seemed to be a a kind of politician that, uh, you know, I'm going to show my age here. I don't Joe, I don't see them anymore. The kind of politicians that seem to care more about their state or the country than they do about their own personal wealth, fame, longevity in office, all these other things that seem to be to be precedent in so many politicians these days. Um, but you're, I think if I think Arnold Schwarzenegger could potentially win again, but he'd have to be a Democrat. Yeah, and there's, there's plenty of folks in front of in front of him in line here. I, I think his, he has said his political days are over. Um, he, but he moved to the center over his time here. He tried to mm-hmm. you know run as more a little bit more conservative when he uh, after the recall, and uh, that's how he was sort of uh, uh, got into office initially. Um, but he but he evolved. He said you know I got my he literally said I got my ass kicked. And and then he moved more towards the center. And he not only on environmental laws, as he said, he helped work with Democrats and create a, a, a groundbreaking environmental uh, law here. But he also moved uh, on issues like uh, the the top two. I think many people call it the quote unquote jungle primary here. Whereas uh, in, in the primary, the top two finishers regardless of party, advanced to the general election. It was a way to try and get more moderate candidates to uh, to, to represent and, and to have candidates not just appeal to their bases, but to appeal to a wider swath of, um, uh, of voters. Yeah, it's, it's had mixed success, but the, but the idea was good. Mm-hmm. Well, as far as I can't, I'm sorry, you brought up Steve Garvey, and it's, I'm like a dog with a bone. I can't let it go. Um, <laughs> I... I have never run for office and, you know, maybe Steve Garvey didn't have a lot of party support. You know, maybe deep pocketed donors didn't step forward. But if I were going to run for office, I would educate myself on at least the basic issues. I mean, at one point, I think one of the people asked Steve Garvey what his policy would be on something. And he he basically said, well, you know, um, I can't tell you what my policy is now, but I can tell you it's going to be good. (laughs) He told me he he told me, he goes, well, I don't have much for you right now, but just wait until, uh, you know, April, May, June. And I was like, well, Steve, People are voting in March. <laughs> what are you going to tell us what you're going to what you're going to come up with after the primary? It was it was it was uh, you, you had to laugh to stop from crying on that one. Wow! So uh, potentially this next uh, election for this seat could be Adam Schiff versus Katie Porter. Well, here's what here's what happened today. It's a bit controversial here in California. We have some fresh news for your for your uh, for your listeners. Um, 
reporter release, or I'm sorry, sorry, Schiff released an ad that showed him and said, I'm, uh, here's the difference between me and Steve Garvey, you know, the leading Republican in the race. And it was an, it was an effort to elevate his candidacy so he gets more support from, there's a lot of undecided Republican voters and, and independent, you know, right-leaning independent voters. So he could, Schiff wants Garvey in the top two to face in November because that's an easier race for him than him against Porter, which would be a tougher race. Mm -hmm. And Porter went off on this. She accused him of a deeply cynical uh, ploy, said he's trying to box out um, uh, very well-qualified female candidates. And so this is is an interesting move. It's it's been done before in California where you you try to Mm -hmm. elevate your – your, your most onerous uh, uh, or your weakest, I should say, uh, Republican candidate. Sure. So you, you could go against them instead of a, a fellow Democrat. It might be a tougher challenge. Yeah, I, I see that. And um, Barbara Lee, um, for a while, was very vocal in her disappointment that Gavin Newsom didn't appoint her to the seat. Um, and he said, you know, I'm trying to stay out of this race. Uh, that's why I've fulfilled my promise of appointing a black woman. But Barbara Lee, it isn't going to be you. Basically, you know, I don't want to put my thumb on the scale. What did you think of that? How, how was that received in California? Well, there's there's uh, let's look at it short term and long term. Short term. Uh, and I wrote about this. There was some, definitely some blowback on Newsom when he did that, um, because and and the, the uh, but then when he appointed uh, Lafonso Butler, who is a uh, who is a longtime uh, labor union organizer, she worked. She was the head of Emily's List, which is, uh, supports uh, 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 abortion rights women, female candidates across the country, and uh, and worked for Kamala Harris. Um, uh, that that kind of that kind of quieted, that kind of pushback quieted. Now, what we don't know is that uh, Newsom, there's been no secret, he, is, uh, he, he will be running for president in 2028 when his term ends here as governor. Uh, will uh, black women, uh, who are the most loyal voters in the Democratic Party, what will, how will they remember that? How will they remember that? Will they remember him overlooking Barbara Lee? Or will they say, well, he, he did, a, you know, t- you know, technically fulfill his promise and appointed LaFonza uh, Butler, who is a, uh, a, a, a queer black woman. Uh, so that is that will that that story has not entirely been told yet. Mm-hmm. Well, and I and I hate to play the age card because I believe I'm older than Barbara Lee. But there were people. Um, <laughs> wait, how old how old is she? I Barbara, she, oh, this is a this is a, a, a Barbara Lee and I and I she is my actually my uh, I live in Oakland so she is my member of Congress and known her for many years and she is upset at me for bringing up her age in stories multiple times she is seventy seven oh no uh, Heck very yes, I'm not that old okay, for, very, for some very, reason very I thought she was seventy seven yeah but the argument has been you know Diane stayed too long and you know yeah. we have this geriatric. Senate, we have this, you know, a little bit younger, but still not exactly youthful uh, Congress, but particularly the Senate. And the fear was that if um, Barbara Lee got the position that because of her age in a relatively short period of time, 
she might be in a sort of a a situation where her age was making her less able to be a viable member of the Senate. And I know that she has pushed back against that. And I know we've got an 80-year-old running for president and another guy who's probably going to run against him is close to 80 himself. So maybe I'm being sexist here. But that, you know, that was... Uh, that was a concern that was raised, and I know that it must be upsetting for her, but I think it is a legitimate thing to at least talk about. It, it, uh, uh, when you talk to people, uh, some people do have that concern here. And, it's, and as, it's, as you said, Joan, it, her timing is uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a bad year to run with that with Biden 80. Trump mm-hmm. 77, the, the specter of Feinstein. Uh, we, we also have, I mean, uh, Speaker Emerita Pelosi is running again, and she's in her, her early 80s, uh, uh, of course, very sharp and is a super high energy level. Um, but much of the California, a sizable portion of the California House delegation is over 70. Um, and one thing about it is that uh, some of those races um, are men are replacing women who are there. Uh, Anna issue. Uh, Congresswoman out here, uh, a friend of Pelosi's, is just turned eighty. She's not running again. Um, it's a it's a it's a bad year because age and, and the gerontocracy will definitely be on the ballot this year, and it's and it's leading a lot of Democrats, as particularly young voters, to you know ponder sitting at home, sitting this one out. They're frustrated, you know, with Biden. they're they're turned off by by Biden's age. We hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe, uh, I've gotten so involved in this uh, Senate race discussion that I am, um, I'm a little late for a commercial break. So hang on. I'm talking oh to Joe okay. uh, Garofoli, who is the San Francisco Chronicle senior political writer. We're going to talk about uh, the California governor's race when we come right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade. And if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you CPT 820. I am joined by uh, Joe Garofoli, who is the senior political writer at the San Francisco Chronicle, and we are talking about California politics and the race to be the next governor. The actual vote is a ways off. But as you said, you know, California is such a big state and it is so hard to make yourself known to everyone that you actually already have a sizable number of people um, who've committed to this governor's race. Talk to me about that. Uh, Joan, first of all, I love that you're nerding out about the 2026 California governor's race. <laughs> I can't uh, help uh, myself, I, I, Joe. I, I, I love this. This is so great. Um, Yes, we already there's already people out there running, raising money. We just uh, just about a week or so ago, uh, a couple weeks ago now, uh, we had the the state Senate leader, Tony Atkins, launching her campaign. And what she said, she says, I have a little over two years to reach 27 million eligible voters in California. That's what people are thinking right now. Mm-hmm. And that's why they're jumping in the race. It's, it's going to take at least 10 million dollars to run a credible campaign somewhere between about 20 and 30 million to run a strong one. Uh, Gavin uh, Gavin Newsom spent 21 million in in his 2022 reelection campaign against, you know, someone that really had no money and was nobody had heard of uh, state Senator Brian Dolly. So it's, it takes money to, it takes a lot of money to run in the state. And uh, so that's why we already have our sitting, 
Lieutenant Governor Lenny Kunalakis running. We have uh, the Superintendent of Public Instruction, Tony Thurman, running. The former state controller, Betty Yee, uh, and uh, the Attorney General, Rob Bonta, is also expected to run. And if, if this is the field, and there might be a couple other people jumping in, but uh, for the first time ever, California, the nation's most diverse state, will have its first non-white dude governor. Wow. Wow. Well, you know, it is a very diverse state, and frankly, it shouldn't have probably taken this long for that to happen, but, you know, no. better better late than never. Um, why, yeah. oh, why? I mean, I know California is a big state. I've, I used to live in Sacramento before Sacramento was cool, sadly. Um <laughs> Um, Our straight judgment on that, but uh, yeah. for my friends. In well, you know, let's face it, it. It's so much cooler now than when I was it's there. Cooler. And Sacramento is not terribly cool. <laughs> it's cooler. Yeah. yeah. Um, but um, why so much money? Why so much money to campaign there? Well, uh, the number one, you have. Um, you do have those 27 million people you have to reach. And the media markets are, you have uh, two top uh, 20 uh, media markets here in San Francisco, uh, the Bay Area, and Los Angeles, if you want to go there. And then you have to reach uh, voters in other places like, you know, Sacramento. You have the Central Valley. America's a breadbasket, but the, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of voters out there. You have San Diego is all another major media market. And, and the thing is, it's like some of these uh, folks who are running are, you know, what we like to call uh, Sacramento strong. They're, they're well-known in the state capital, our state capital, Sacramento, but they're, they're really not well-known, you know, if they, if they drive three miles out of town. Hmm. So they have to introduce themselves to people all around uh, the state, which is, you know, we're the, the world's fifth largest economy. Um, and we're, you know, like a, 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 a Newsom calls us a, a nation state. Uh, and, and in many ways, California is. Yeah, it, it really is. But, you know, Joe, it, it doesn't uh, take all that much money to have a TikTok account. Um, you know, I've, I hear TikTok is viewed by lots of people. You know, you could do you could become a, a TikTok star. I mean, look what it did for Jeff Jackson's career in North Carolina. He was a first term congressman. Nobody knew Jeff Jackson. And suddenly, you know, he's on late night talk shows because he does these cool little videos that people like me. I can't get enough of. Uh, with all due respect to the candidates running here, and uh, I, I don't see TikTok star in their future. No, they're, they're, they're fine. They're fine folks, but I, I don't. I don't see uh, any of these folks going viral in that way. So, who, I could be proven wrong, but at, at this moment, no. And you know, a lot of people in the Midwest uh, who haven't ever lived there think of California as this like. Real, you know, progressive, cutting edge state. But you've got to remember, California gave us Kevin McCarthy and Devin Newsom uh, to just name two. Yeah, there are some very uh, conservative portions of California. Oh, very much so. And I, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm uh, lived here about more than thirty years. But I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I lived actually lived in uh, lived in Chicago for for, for four years. I went to school out there. Uh, so I and I lived in Wisconsin. Uh, so I know, I know I'm sort of a Midwesterner, uh, born and bred. Uh, so I, I get the I get that vibe. And yes, uh, Central California, uh, the Central Valley, is more conservative. Than the rest of California, than the coastal areas, and particularly where uh, 
uh, Kevin McCarthy was from, or is from, Bakersfield. That's, uh, that's oil country. Uh, there and and Nunes uh, was representing a an adjoining uh, adjacent nearby district. Um, that is that is that's the heart of conservative uh, Republican California. And um, you know uh, people you know when McCarthy is leaving, some Democrats are you know for don't live here. They're like, oh wow, maybe Democrats could take the seat. No way, they're not they're not mm-hmm. taking that seat. That's a that's a Republican seat. And the the Republican areas here, there may be few. Uh, because the, the, but they are very Republican. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, when he left right before the holidays, uh, didn't really talk about where he was going to go or what he was going to do. Like he was just going to like go on vacation, you know, put his feet up, maybe drink some umbrella drinks. Um, any word on is he like getting involved with party politics or is he just done with all of it? Well, I look for him to uh, wind up on K Street in Washington, you know, as soon as he's eligible to as a, as a lobbyist. I mean, th- think of that man's mm. uh, connections that he has developed over the years. And one thing McCarthy was very good at um, is uh, was recruiting candidates, was tapping into donors. Uh, so his, he, he knows uh, both the grassroots well of uh, conservative America. He knows the donor class very well. He would be a very, very valuable commodity and asset for any sort of uh, uh, lobbying firm. And he has uh, some of his closest friends who are in Trump world or uh, uh, making a living uh, on uh, in, in K Street. And so he's yeah, he, he's, he's don't cry for him. He'll be <laughs> he'll be driving a nicer car uh, very soon. OK, Joe, thank you so much. It has been such a delight to talk to you and uh, briefly yeah, revisit the state that I called home for a while. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Uh, Joe's the senior political writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. That's going to do it for me. Uh, Driving at Home with Pere Vasquez is up next. I actually will be here tomorrow at 2 o'clock. And we will do our usual thing where we open up the phone lines and uh, find out what you think are the important news stories of the day and the week. And uh, I hope to hear from you then. Take care, my friends. Stay safe. Have a great evening. Good night.